I, yeah, I finished my master's degree in um, yeah, studying engineering and, and I, I knew that I wanted to come back and do a PhD. Like I kind of felt my, my heart was, was in the academic world, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do it in. And my, my, my thought, my inclination was like, well, I'd, I'd much rather take a few years to both figure that out and then find the right program. Um, because if you're going to become an expert in something, you might as well do it in something you really care about <laughs> or, or right. at least make it the right thing. Um, because I think it is, you know, my, my goal wasn't just, you know, I, I didn't get a PhD, um, to, to have it as like a, a necessary requirement for any job. Um, it was, I mean, it was purely because that, you know, the exercise of doing that felt like the right use of my, you know, uh, abilities and interests and passions. Um, but so anyways, so I finished my master's degree and I was like, okay, I'm going to work for a few years, figure this out and kind of, um, work my way back into the academic world. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. That's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Michigan. He has his PhD in kinesiology, but before that, he did both his bachelor's and his master's in biomedical engineering. So he has kind of a mixed background, which is pretty interesting. He also is a pro ultra runner. Welcome to the show, Jeff Burns. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for hanging out with me, Jeff. We were talking. So if you are only on iTunes, Spotify, audio-only platforms, you're missing out on Jeff's sweet brick background. Um, he was telling me he lives in a historic building. Can you give the, just a short rundown before we got going, tell me about where you are right now? So I'm in a brewery. It's called the Central Brewery in Ann Arbor, Michigan, downtown Ann Arbor. Um, it was one of the first buildings in town. It was built in 1860. So this lovely irregular brick behind me is now about 160 years old. Um, yeah, and it's it is cool too because it functioned as like this this area of town was was German Irish immigrants um, lived here, and so it was Bowles was the the name of the guy, the brewer. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's German, German guy making beer. Um, and we're in, in our basement. So their function is my basement, my laundry room. Now these like big cavernous catacombs down beneath the building is where they did the lagering for the beer to keep it, um, uh, temperature stable. Cause that, you know, obviously predated refrigeration. Um, right. so those catacombs down there also served as a um, hideout for, escaped slaves on the Underground Railroad. So this was an Underground Railroad stop during that time as well. So so it's kind of a lot of a lot of stories in these um if these if these bricks could talk. Bricks, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they'd have good tales. It's one of those things where like sometimes I wish in your case you got 
information, but then, you know, I, I mentioned before on the show, and I was telling you before we got going, I, I live in a historic home, though, as we were talking about, they're all relatively young compared to um, anything that actually stands in Europe from quite a time ago. It, I kind of wish sometimes there was like a ledger almost, like a journal that belonged to the house that stayed in the house yeah. where people like told their stories while they, you know, lived or worked wherever that building is. So you you have an easy way to access like who were the people that were here and, and what happened to this place? Because otherwise, you know, if if we just got going, I just said, Jeff, how are you doing today? Blah, blah, blah. I didn't mention it all. It, it just It's just bricks behind you, right? Yeah. But there's more to it than that. Yeah. You're going to have to go digging through, you know, rip up your walls and uh, <laughs> go into the attics and stuff. You can find interesting things. I have a friend who grew up in, in a hundred-year-old home. Up, I, I'm from northern Michigan, from Trevor mm-hmm. City. Um, and when they first moved in there, I, I can't remember if they are in their basement or redoing something, but they opened up the walls and they found a bunch of letters from, you know, the people who would originally lived there then my my landlord here who did all the renovations on this um 50 50 years ago um he still still manages it he told me whenever he's gone through like the crawl spaces or the basements he always finds like it's like he's he says he's it's almost like he's always finding new like things from past like he's found letters as well as uh be in antique whiskey bottles <laughs> <laughs> um so drink of choice of former owners <laughs> yeah so yeah the the best things i'll well, the best or like the the most noticeable things i'll find are like um it would have been 20 30 years ago um unfortunately i kind of have a living time capsule next to me the lady that lives next to me has been in her house for almost 50 years now so she's like oh yeah this and so i kind of get a living history of the house but they're like kids that lived here and they've just it ran like the benches downstairs in the garage on the bricks in the sunroom they like wrote their names in various places so it's like oh they're like there's andy again he was just prolific yeah. writing his name on everything so <laughs> <laughs> that, like that's the best i get yeah so i'll have to keep that in mind we're getting ready getting ready to renovate the kitchen so i'll have to stick something in the walls nice <laughs> um so you're telling me before you got doing what you're doing now um, you didn't go straight from your master's to your PhD, right. uh, which I don't know if that's unusual or usual nowadays, but you were working as an engineer. So, so what were you doing before you kind of came back to school? Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I finished my master's degree in, um, yeah, studying engineering and, and I, I knew that I wanted to come back and do a PhD. Like I kind of felt my my heart was was in the academic world, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do it in. And my 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 thought, my inclination was like, well, I'd I'd much rather take a few years to both figure that out and then find the right program. Um, because if you're going to become an expert in something, you might as well do it in something you really care about, <laughs> or or right. at least make it the right thing. Um, because I think it is, you know, my my goal wasn't just, you know, I, I didn't get a PhD um, to, to have it as like a, a necessary requirement for any job. Um, it was, I mean, it was purely because that, you know, the exercise of doing that felt like the right use of my, you know, uh, abilities and interests and passions. Um, 
but so anyways, so I finished my master's degree. I was like, okay, I'm going to work for a few years, figure this out, and kind of um, work my way back into the academic world, you know, as I, as I kind of sniff out what, what, the, what the calling is. So to answer your question, I first, um, the first things I did actually between my bachelor's and master's degree is I, I in addition to studying engineering, I also studied in our, our business school here at University of Michigan. I was a fellow in an operations institute. And so I did um, essentially a consulting stint for General Motors. I worked in Poland doing process optimization in one of their plants, vehicle assembly plants. So first did that. And then after graduation, I worked for a year for St. Jude Medical, which I think they've actually since been bought by Medtronic, but they're a medical device company. They make pacemakers. Um, I was doing mechanical um, tests, validation and development. So any, you know, any any medical device or, um, you know, and we were working with the, the leads of the pacemakers, so the long wires that kind of snake through your body and actually shock the, deliver the electricity to the, to the cardiac tissue. Um, I, I was designing and developing the tests on the assembly line to check the mechanical integrity and quality of the products before they went out, and that's kind of an FDA thing. So, um, so yeah, so doing that kind of test method development validation for FDA stuff was, uh, half of me liked it from the kind of statistical analysis side because it's very much like, um, I mean, it's a it's test method development of like reliability, repeatability, all that stuff. Um, it kind of segued from some of the process optimization stuff I was doing, but the subject, but the like, the working for a company just was not my jam. I I I, I was totally a um, I'm totally, I I love the academic research world. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think there's there's not a right or wrong like there's it's not like oh working for companies is terrible no like for some for some people and their goals and their interests like it's awesome like the guy and i think one of the reasons why i came back or like came back to the academic world even quicker than i anticipated was because i saw the passion that the guys that i worked with had for those devices and the products and i just didn't have it Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but I, you know, my, my passions lay in, in other, in other areas. Um, so luckily I was able to then, uh, get a job back here at the university of Michigan in the department of orthopedic surgery as a research engineer. So I was essentially an engineer helping the surgeons and the surgical residents with their, um, you know, their research outputs there. And I was essentially a biomechanics research consultant engineer um staff member for for the department there and that was i did that for two years and that was that was an absolute privilege and joy and it really informed um you know wasn't directly related to the subject matter that i would do my phd in but it allowed me to work with the human body um which was I like I think those two years that I did that was experience that very few people on the planet would get because I was working with I was primarily working with cadaveric tissue. So I would actually go down to the hospital morgue to, you know, harvest recently when when you know people would pass away if they would donate their donate their body to 
you know, as we say colloquial to, to science, um, mm-hmm. I would do, I would go down and do kind of the harvest on those limbs if we needed them for research projects, bring them back. Um, so I, you know, through my, through those two years, I was constantly, you know, working with the human body, like in, you know, in actuality. And so to learn, you know, not just the 3D geometry of, of our bodies, um, literally, you know, doing dissections and whatnot, but also like understanding that tissue and how it, how it all plays together, the actual mechanical properties of that tissue. Um, I just felt like I, I developed such a, a, a unique intuitive understanding for, for our, our bodies and our, our systems, you know, as they function from materials and mechanics standpoint and kind of the geography of, of, of us. So that was really an absolute privilege. And, and doing that, I also got to work doing a lot of like canonical mechanical testing with, um, you know, machines, whether it's like doing load deformation tests, um, you know, different kind of classic mechanical testing regimes. Um, yeah. So got to, got to hone my, my orthopedic chops for a few years before then, yeah, landing, landing in the PhD program and getting started on that. So a lot of, a lot of, a lot of different engineering disciplines all focusing, you know, on different kind of different things that I'm passionate about landed back here. It's kind of interesting how people find their way. It almost seems like, I mean, as you tell the story, and maybe it's a matter of looking back and, and making it into a story, but it almost seems like, you know, you only had to make a couple decisions to kind of find your way into the right groove, you know, and and well, obviously the first one being recognizing that you didn't have that same passion that the other guys did for um, the the pacemakers, you know, and (laughs) it made me think about too, how, you know, sometimes like in, in your case, you're like, it was kind of interesting, but you weren't like passionate about it and other people would hear it and be like, like, Oh God, like, well, how can they possibly do that? It's so, that would be so boring. You know, some people would like say like accounting, you say accounting and most people are like, Oh man, like get it away from me. And other people like my CPA love it, love the numbers. It's just finding that thing I think is tough for most people. So it, like I said, your story almost seems like you were destined to kind of get there. And then I assume from kind of where you left off in your story, it, it becomes a relatively easy marriage for, uh, with running and then, you know, bringing that all together. Yeah. I mean, I would say that's, I gave, I gave you the high level story that like, right. you know, the cliff notes sound right. like goes very nicely, but to anybody listening, that's like, you know, whether they're trying to figure out what they're doing or continuing to navigate their own journey. I mean, I guess we all always are doing that. Right. Um, it was torturous the whole, the whole way. Um, from a standpoint of like, uh, you know, I, I thought when I graduated, the, the thing that I was actually originally thinking I was going to do was go into management consulting with my engineering degree. I like, I thought I wanted to come back to school um, to do, you know, academic work. But at the time, like I didn't, I didn't have, because I did so many different things in college, whether it was like 
working in the automotive industry and, and you know, you know, these like operations in the business school and stuff like that, that kind of segued me into like thinking consulting was setting me up. But like at the same time, I also worked in basic science, biomedical research labs and all of these things made it very challenging to get a, a traditional biome biomedical engineering job um, when I graduated. So I, it, it was, I mean, it, it was challenging just to even get a job coming out of school, despite the fact that I had um, very competitive degrees from, you know, one of the best engineering institutions in the country. Um, I just, I had just spread myself so far and wide that like, I, you know, a lot of recruiters want somebody who's done very specific things. Um, so anyways, so I think like I, I made it very hard for myself to like get a job. Um, but I also at the same time, I, I don't regret that because I, I always did things I was interested in that have now set me up to, to give me a very broad um, scope of knowledge and experience to look at these problems. But anyways, along the way, when I was working for St. Jude, trying to get out of that job and pivot somewhere else, um, even that was, was brutally hard because I, again, it was like I was getting experience in something I, I didn't even want to have experience in. Um, and so it was only, it was only actually after I was applying for a job that I didn't even really want, that I asked one of my mentors from graduate school to write me a letter of recommendation. And he was like, we need to get you back in the academic world. Like, I'll, I'll recommend you for this, but you shouldn't do that. Um, and then shortly thereafter, he was in orthopedic surgery and, and that job, you know, this, you know, biomechanics engineer job opened up and he was like, I think you should apply for this. Like, it will not pay you nearly as well as, you know, working for a company, but it might be more in line with, you know, your goals. And I was like, yes, that's it. But even then, once I was doing that, at the same time, I was also interviewing for a, a different job with that, that pacemaker company. Um, that would have been something that would be a little bit more interesting and it would have been almost twice the salary. <laughs> um, and so even then, like going into that, like hindsight is 2020 that like right. it was it was. And I think in my heart, there was never any decision. Um, but at the same time, I was still like deciding between those two jobs at the time. And like I said, I think maybe in my heart there was never a decision, but on the surface there there was. And yeah, long. and then even that, though that like then once I get into this job in, in orthopedic surgery and it's it's really what I love doing. Um, finding a PhD program in running, that's like, that's like trying to find a needle in a haystack um, mm -hmm. because the number of, the number of funded PhD programs in kinesiology each year, like in, you know, in the U.S. are, you know, you could probably count them on your hands. And then the number that would fund you to study running and even to study anything like related to running performance is like, like there, there might not even be one a year that comes through that, you know, like let alone. So even getting that opportunity was, was very challenging. Um, so along the way, I would say it's one of those things where I, I think I've, 
I have good intuition and good instincts and, and in terms of like where I guess where I lay my priorities and kind of steer myself but when when you're doing this steering it's it's foggy as hell man it's like yeah. it's, it's definitely not like oh that's exactly where I'm gonna be it's a long ways off but I know exactly like I'm gonna work towards it no it's very much like okay I know the things I need to do to get to where I want to be but I don't know if I'm ever even going to be able to get there. Um, but the only thing I can do is to keep doing the things that I know I should. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, it's, it's been, it's, it's certainly not, not once we get down in the weeds in that story, it's, it's like, it's not as rosy, but I think that's also makes it, you know, that that's what all of our journeys are is like, if we only ever look at the high level cliff notes, the stories become very intractable because that's not how life is. It's like more often if we want to be inspired or not even inspired, but learn, learn from someone else's journey, like we can probably get a lot more out of understanding those minute roadblocks that they hit on a day-to-day -day basis. Because if we just look at the, you know, the 10,000 foot view, it's not very helpful when, like I said, you're on the ground and the fog is pretty thick. <laughs> yeah. So I, this may seem like a, a non sequitur, but it, I'll, I promise it's not. When did you start running? Oh, um, probably not long after I started walking. Okay. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. So, okay. Yeah. So this, this is where I'm going with this. Okay. So Cause, cause I, the whole thing is like, you're in the weeds, right? But you keep yeah. like slogging away. And that's the whole thing about running, especially ultra running, right? Like, yeah, you just, you're going to feel like crap sometimes and you just, you just keep going and you just, it's yeah. not, <laughs> it's easier in hindsight. You get done with that race and you're like, oh yeah, like it mile 26, I puked my guts out and then I put myself back together and we got back out, you know, just, well, hope, depending on how long the race is, hopefully you're not puking your guts out at mile 26, but, <laughs> but you know, it's like, it's the same mentality, right? Where it, it's, they make nice stories afterwards. Yeah. But while you're doing it, it, you, there, there's highs, there's lows, there's everything in between. And, but somehow you just, Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Yep. And that's actually, you know, that whole that whole concept, the idea of hindsight after the fact, you kind of forget you you it becomes more difficult to relate to the actual struggle within that, you know, that event or that journey. I think that's a fundamental, like um, fundamental part of the human condition. And I I don't, I was going to say it's, it's like a flaw of, of humans, but I would actually argue it's probably an evolutionary, uh, it, it provides evolutionary fitness from the sense that we decouple ourselves from the, the pain of a, of a task. And I think it permeates, it permeates everything. It's like, it's, it's that, you know, the suffering in a race, we can, we can never, or in, you know, a hard interval section or any sort of training. I cannot sit here and recreate that level of discomfort in my mind of, you know, the last, you know, 85, you know, 
what I felt at 80K of a 100K race, mm -hmm. um, those depths, uh, that hell, I cannot concept, I, I have an inability to know what that feels like sitting right here. When I'm like sitting right here thinking about a hard interval session I did, I cannot simulate the same emotional like struggle and psychological, you know, we, in running, we always call it the pain, like fighting the pain. Mm. That's such an abstraction. And I think that inability that, or, or rather the ability to forget that abstraction as soon as you're away from it is, is, you know, it permeates across everything we do. It's like, um, I mean, it's the same thing with like, uh, say you're trying to like, you know, watch what you eat or like, you know, watch your diet or something like that. And somebody offers like a beautiful, you know, chocolate chip cookie that's fresh out of the oven or something. And it's like after, after lunch, you're like, not that hungry. And you're like, I know I, I shouldn't eat that cookie, but it's like right there. And right. Have, like, and you know, two hours later, if you like feel guilty for eating that cookie or like two hours before, you know, like, I'm not going to eat that cookie. But like in that moment, that that like raw drive that you have to just be like, yeah, I have to have that cookie. I'm going to eat it. Like we just we can't we can't we can't put ourselves in the moment of of those kind of like strange strange times of like um, of uh, I don't want to say I don't want to say stress, but like um, like. Uh, I don't know, just putting our, putting our body and our minds in kind of like augmented um, states of arousal. It's like emotional it, gravity or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, our ra like when, when, when our, our rational brain kind of gets shut off, um, we, can't, we can't go back and revisit that with our rational brain. You know, it's like, and so I think it's, it's just a funny it's a funny thing with like the human body that, like I said, it's like, it seems like, it seems like this flaw because it would be so much better if we could like just coldly analyze everything we do all the time. But I think it really is like an evolutionary adaptation, that ability to like for, forget our animalistic selves. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, I'm glad you say that um, because for, for the longest time, and I don't feel like anybody else has said this besides myself before, you just said it, um, that I've encountered, but I've always said, and uh, I'm not as good at distance runners as you are, but pretty good um, for the general population is concerned. I would say the thing that makes me as good as I am or able to achieve as much as my body can achieve is my ability to forget how much it hurt yesterday. Yeah. I always go back to that because it's like, you know, you can, we could sit here and be like, I remember, I remember that like the first time I went under 16 for the 5k and I remember the last thousand meters, like my legs were on fire the entire time. I, I know that it happened logically. I remember it, but I can't feel it. Right. You know, I, I there's, there's, there's that, that, like I said, emotional gravity or that suffering in that moment that's simply not recreatable analytically. Mm -hmm. it, so, it, it, and that goes with training too, right? Where you, if you have to push yourself to a certain depth in training and you're exhausted and then two days later you've got to do it again. Well, 
you can't be thinking about that thing. You have to forget that it hurt then and just focus on what am I doing right now? So it's like, like you said, I really think it is an adaptation to be able to forget and just say, this is what I'm doing right now. It doesn't matter whether it was good or bad before. Like all I have is the present. Yep. And I think it also, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's both like empowering and scary. And, and it's what, it's what, it's what makes me love racing so much because it's like, it's the only time that you can, that you really can go to that place and, and exist at least for me, because I, I think, um, maybe it's one of, maybe it's one of my talents or in, I mean, in some cases it's probably a talent in some cases it's probably a hindrance, but I'm very, I think I have a strong governor, um, from a standpoint of like, I, you know, I will not like, I, I don't go too deep in training or like anything like that. I I'm very good at protecting myself, but races are the one time to, that I've like, you know, I can rip that off. And the goal is to go as deep as possible. And I think it's kind of cool because you really do go into that. It's almost like we all have a Jekyll and Hyde, like irrationality and rationality. And I am somebody who in so much of my life is so overly coldly rational and like analytic that the race becomes that time that not, not even like I go into it thinking like, yes, I get to like rip that off. But just by proxy, by going there, you have no choice but to like have it ripped off. Um, so you go into that state of like, of just altered consciousness. And, and it's not, I don't think it's altered consciousness like thinking of like a runner's high or like mm-hmm. having hallucinations. I just mean altered consciousness like Jekyll and Hyde from the standpoint of like, you put yourself in in such a state of like, again, if we think back to evolutionary terms, like almost like existential crisis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and to that point of, you know, trying to achieve a goal or in, in the, in the best sense, not even trying to achieve a goal, but trying to accomplish something in the moment, like beating somebody else that you, you then, again, it's like, I, I always, one of the things that I kind of like mantra that I have in races that I think about is I always say like, I'm going into wolf mode. And so like, I think of like, I'm stripping away and I'm just like, I'm hunting and reacting. And that's like, it's, it's, it's just thrilling to go there. Sometimes, I mean, all the time, <laughs> if you do it right, it's, it's incredibly distressing, but it's cool. It's just cool to see like each time what, because you can't, because you can't conceptualize what it will be. It's mm-hmm. like each, each time is like, uh, um, it's like jazz. It's, it's like, it's, you know, it's, it's Im- improvising within a structure. Um, so that's why I always tell people ultra marathons are like jazz operas. They have these like long, like acts and operatic rises and falls, but within them, there's so much improvisation that you can't script. Um, so it's like a, yeah, it's a jazz opera. And I think maybe all running is that to an extent or all endurance, I would say all endurance exercise. Yeah, it's 
you know, you mentioned um, like stripping things away to get to that place. And that's, I feel like that's a common thread anytime I talk to other runners or, or endurance athletes. It's like we try to figure out how to strip away the ego or the rational mind. Not necessarily the same thing, but um, it's like, so we're going to go Shrek here. It's like we're in layers. It's like we're an onion. <laughs> going to peel back the layers of the onion. All alleyums. <laughs> right. It, it, but it's like, you know, I, sometimes I feel like when I'm trying to do something creative, uh, like I've got, I was writing a song before we were recording, noodling around here. And it's like getting into that creative place where my brain is working musically it's much like when i'm running there's there's this noisy mind that's going on just as an automatic thing that gets in the way that you know when we sit at the computer and we're not focusing like there's just just chatter always Mm -hmm. going on and then when you're running it's and you find that place and getting towards being in the zone it's like that chatter starts to quiet down and hopefully eventually dissipates so that that like inner self is revealed in some sense and it's it's quiet it's focused it's it has you know one goal it's just that that like motion forward yeah i love that um i i i 100 agree that um or or rather to build on that i think i i strongly believe that athletic endeavors are are so much so similar to like musical and artistic endeavors as well they're they're movements they're movements of the human spirit mm-hmm. um and i and athletic endeavors take it in a um it's like in a physical form um right. so it's like an expression of the human spirit through physical means whereas the arts are you know, in expression in the human spirit through, um, you know, through whatever artistic medium that is. Right. Right. Um, and I, and I, and I think that we, as, as humans, like when you're doing it, um, the experience that you just described is, is the same. It's that where it's, it's tapping into something, something deeper. And it's like, if you do it right, it's not, it's not like it's going to be easy. Um, I, I, I have a little bit of disdain for the concept of like flow states, which mm-hmm. like, I, I mean, I've, I've had a few races, I would say not, not, certainly not recently, but early on in my career where like everything clicks and it's feeling it's like what that canonically is. But I don't think that's the majority of people's experience when you run. I think more, it's more often what you describe where you kind of just peel back I don't know if it's peeling back the layers of distraction and layers of rationality or maybe just, you know, quieting them down and focusing on, on something. Um, and for the majority of the time, like I said, when you do that, it's not like it makes it any easier. If anything, it makes it like the, the pain, um, quote unquote, much more heightened and, and difficult, mm-hmm. but like, maybe easier to not easier but like um you feel more adept to navigate it once you've kind of silenced everything um but so anyways 
the experience is the same as as you know another creative type doing going, you know going through their process. Um, but also then for the people bearing witness to it, whether you're a fan watching a race of some kind, or somebody watching uh, you know a brilliant performer on the stage, or looking at a piece of art or something like that. Um, it's the same thing where you where you 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 see their their movement and you feel you know you feel it yourself or you you know you feel something about it and it's one of it's one of the things that um i i you know i've spent over the last couple of years spent a lot of time in south africa for the comrades marathon which is one of my you know my big race each year and then um I've done two research stints at the University of Cape Town there. Um, and one of the things that I keep coming back to that country that I love is they have this reverence for sport that I don't think we have in the United States as much. Um, you know, we in the United States, sports are, at least, you know, on a professional scale, when we look at football, basketball, et cetera, um, they're big business, but I think sports are viewed as like entertainment here. And like just people out exercising, you know, playing basketball or playing tennis on the weekends or going for bike rides or, you know, or just out running. It's like we, we view it as it has to be either exercise or entertainment from the standpoint that it's like if you're not a professional doing it to entertain us, you're doing it to make yourself, you know, healthier or better. And then looking at it as such, I think athletes are kind of viewed um, at, like, I don't want to say people, like, look down on athletes, but, like, the, the athletic pursuit is, is viewed as kind of, like, this, like, derivative or, like, kind of basic, you know, non, it's not, it's not, like, it doesn't have the same respect that like some sort of intellectual pursuit has mm -hmm. or even that we kind of give to the arts of, of you know like beauty you know any sort of kind of respect to that but getting back to what i was saying about south africa is they have this they have this reverence for sports that like puts it on the same level as you know scientific or intellectual pursuit or artistic or you know musical pursuits or something like that so that people, even people who are prioritizing, you know, you could be a middle of the pack runner, but if you're training hard and giving a portion of yourself to it, your community like sees that and respects the hell out of it. And like, if you are a good athlete or a high level athlete, it's like you are viewed, it, it's almost like they view you the same as like, a PhD scientist or something like that. Like they, they, yeah, there, there's a reverence for it as well as I would say there, there is a respect for the, the expertise and the process involved. Um, whereas like, I don't think, you know, it's not like people in America aren't going to look at like, look at an NFL player and they would see them not as like an expert, but rather than like some freak of human nature that can like do these crazy things. But I, you know, I look at those guys and I look at an NBA player, like all of them, I think that they are, they are experts in their, you know, in their, their bodies and their process and their preparation. 
and and we we lose sight of because all we ever do is report scores and outcomes everything that we talked about at the beginning of this this podcast the process you know what was what goes on in the weeds i think that's all that all that all is part of their you know an athlete of any kind of their artistic process the day-to-day struggles how they get through it what inspires them what you know what i'm thinking about when i go out on just a day-to-day training run like what gets me out the door what gets me riled up on that run what gets me through it what worries me you know what you know what's on my mind that week what are the 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 challenges within that that micro cycle of training like like universes exist in our brain just to get through each week you know like like i said like if a if an ultra marathon is a jazz opera like that opera plays out day to day week to week like you know everything is is this constant challenge and we find different reasons and struggles and i think that's all part of the artistic process and it's like that I wish that was better communicated about athletes of all kinds because, you know, right now we just have like, you know, we, we view sports and athletics from a journalistic standpoint of, like I said, we just see results. And so that, you know, then athletes are just essentially machines for producing these results, but we got to understand the humanity of it. And so I think, you know, I, yeah, it's something that I think going back to that idea of like create, you know, creativity as an artist creativity as an athlete i think we we it's it's all an act it's all an exercise in creativity because to get out the door and suffer each day you have to have a reason mm-hmm. um yeah it's so as you're talking about it, i'm thinking about like you know how does our i guess the north american culture or u.s culture present athletics and i, I immediately think about espn and you get on ESPN and it's sometimes, you know, they'll, 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 they'll be guys or, or uh, ladies on debating, you know, this person versus that person. But often it's like, uh, it's like a circle jerk of stats. Like yeah. what, what's the best stat we can come up with? And, it, right. and it's, and then that's, it becomes such an obsession that it's like, you'll get inane um, stats like, you know, He's the first 300-pound linebacker who ate a hoagie before halftime to catch a, you know, catch a ball, like be an eligible receiver and catch a ball tenure. Like it's like so sure. specific that it's like, well, of course nobody's done that before. It's such a specific thing that like, yeah. yes, obviously, and, and like the obsession with stats is really laid bare in that like absurd examples that happen. But I think. Part of the inability for us to, you know, have that reverence is a little bit in our ability to relate and then also in a lack of ability to articulate those skills. You know, like us sitting here trying to talk about the the process and articulate the experience of peeling back the layers or quieting the mind just between ourselves. And we've both been through that, you know, but it's, we're even struggling to find the right, like the pinpoint language to say, like, this is the thing that we're talking about. And we understand each other because we've been through it. But if you think about, let's say like the NFL, 
think about because we like to give football players a, a hard time about just being dumb jocks, right? Which they're not. Um, maybe some are, but I, I think in, in aggregate, probably not. It, but but even then, so I would uh, I'm gonna let you finish, but <laughs> I want to say to that point, I think that's one of the biggest problems is that we have this we 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 that dumb jocks right we associate we associate intelligence with like academic right intellect but i what i would counter that with is that like even somebody who who you know can't you know if if they're not gonna like they're not a whiz at you know algebra or trigonometry or like don't have you know Sixteen hundred SAT vocabulary or something like that. Um, I would say some of these guys have have just absurdly, absurdly beautiful and brilliant. Um, I would say like athletic intelligence mm -hmm. as well as like um, physical intelligence of like the ability to read spatial situations, right? Read games, read like just instincts, intuitions, but also reading their own body. So like right. you don't get to that level of sport or achievement without having a expert level ability to read your body. It's not necessarily a conscious thing, like you wake up and say like, ah, this hurt today, like I should work on that. Or no, it's like a very intuitive thing, much like I think I have a very intuitive understanding of like, statistical modeling and, and mathematics and things like that, that like, I, you know, just the way I think about things, some of those quote unquote dumb jocks have like understandings of, of bodily movements, body control, spatial awareness that like are, are, you know, beyond what anybody else has. And I think it gets back to that idea of like, we don't, we fundamentally don't, register that as like a form of intelligence and i right. and i wish we would um right well anyway. that's that's i mean that's that's exactly where i was going is yeah. that it, you know that it, part of the 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 difficulty is that you know these guys if you i think like between us it's easy for us to have a conversation about running because this is what we do but like I have very little experience playing football. And by that, I mean, the last time I played football was probably like middle school, you know? So like, I don't know anything about the intricacies of the game. You know, I can watch it on TV. I'm starting to see some of the patterns, but it's not the same in any sense of the word as if you took, you know, like current top players, former top players, even referees, like my brother's a referee. And um, the only reason he couldn't be an NFL referee is because he's not tall enough. So <laughs> uh, he got cut for that. But it, he can see things I don't see because he has that yeah. intelligence, that experience. But, but I think part of the issue with that pervasive idea about the dumb jock is that it, it's hard to articulate those things to somebody who, number one, doesn't have the experience and then finding a common language. Yeah. I love you know, that. like if 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 it's two quarterbacks talking to each other, mm -hmm. you know, they can probably say a few words and communicate something at a deep level that yeah. we would be like, I have no idea what just happened. Yeah. 
So you think about like a, a reporter on the sideline who in often it seems like and this and this just may be a, a media thing. It often seems like they try to put like a pretty blonde lady on the field to talk with the players. Right. Yeah. Not always blonde, but as a stereotype. And she's clearly not played in the NFL. So she doesn't have the experience to talk to these guys at the same level that they're playing at. Yeah. You know, so it'd be the same thing if you stuck me out there. Like, I could probably talk to him, but it's not going to be a very interesting conversation for them mm-hmm. because I can't relate on their level. Yeah. And, I mean, that's one of the challenges. I mean, that's that, I mean, that could actually get to maybe one of the fundamental reasons why we have these viewpoints in why we view sports as you know and athletes as we do because and this is this is going to go deep this is like structural here because the people who get the education and the quote-unquote intellect to report on these things and to communicate on them are not the same people that have gone through it and very rarely i mean you, I mean, the most common thing is like sometimes you'll have former, not sometimes, it's often you have former players come through and they'll do like commentary. Mm-hmm. And that I would actually like, I think there's, that's almost less, more often than not, um, not helpful. And, and more often than not, they're like not the right people to be doing that because they have they have no training in communications or or skills, you know, on that front. So they understand their, you know, whatever their subject matter on like, on an intuitive level, but they're not skilled at communicating it at all. Um, And so that can sometimes set us back. And then you flip it, people who are really good at communicating things and, and maybe whether it's, you know, brilliant journalists with great English degrees, they're going through like different, you know, communications degrees and lots of experience and things like that, they fundamentally, you know, haven't been in the trenches and experienced those things that it's, you know, they then also may be good at communicating, but fundamentally don't have the actual subject matter to communicate. Um, And so if, if our whole media structure is set up on people who are able to communicate like the, the subject matter, but don't have any, intuitive understanding of the subject matter and people who have intuitive understanding of the subject matter but you know don't have any ability or developed you know the ability to communicate there's just this fundamental mismatch that we can never never bridge that gap to bring people in and i would say the one i you know i always get back to this is this is like the shining example of of um where it's done well is my favorite sports writers of all time is Kenny Moore. Um, and he was, you know, fantastic national level um, marathoner in the early se- late 60s, early 70s, ran Oregon under Bowerman. Um, and he, you know, he represented the U.S. at the Olympics, in the marathon. Um, but he was he was a journalist and he, he wrote for Sports Illustrated, wrote freelance, um, just a brilliant writer 
who also had been through the process. And so when you read his pieces on running, that's when I'm like, if we could have this for every sport, for all of running, this is what it is because it's somebody who's, who's been there, felt it, but also has, you know, busted his chops in the trenches, in the pursuit, but also, also honed his chops and practice like in, in the art of, of getting it. It's like, it's like we need we need good translators, right? Um, right. And so it's I mean it's a it's a skill, but I think that getting back to that idea of like you're talking about like the reporters on the sidelines and whatnot. I think it's like because the system is just structurally built on the entertainment industry brings in people who haven't done it to report on it. They don't, you know, they they don't. They can't. They can't guide us. They can't. They can't take us along on the process because they haven't been through the process. But the people who go through the process aren't the ones who have like, you know, the level of achievement that they have um, gotten to that that place to give them expertise in their skill and their athletic ability is almost mutually exclusive. You know, it makes it almost mutually exclusive right. for like developing the skill to then communicate it back. Um, so yeah, so maybe maybe just that concept of like the entertainment industry of sports um, just gives us, you know, gives us that gap and we can't, you know, can't have our cake and eat it too. Um, I feel like you you are, I think every once in a while you are going to get somebody who comes back and, and can communicate those yeah. things. But, but I think one of the... It one is, is going to be more rare. But one of the... I think maybe what what we need to get a, away from too, and we and this is what's really exciting is I think we are, is getting back to that idea of like the stats and the sports center phenomenon is that's what all of those all of those sports programmings have always been what we were talking about earlier where it's just that high level story all they give you you know sports center top ten all that is is just like clickbait like right. snapshots of what happened. You know, when you give, you know, the whole sports center structure is on the side of the screen. Here are the 20 stories we're going through in this hour, rattling them off minute by minute by minute. Um, like I said, you could do an entire hour long series on like one set of downs in football, you know, yeah. or like you know, one, you know, four down drive. Like there's so much complexity and beauty going on there. Um, not that, not that you necessarily should, but like, I think the like really compelling humanistic expertise side of the sport is in that, but the whole entertainment structure is built on, you know, stat, 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 high level, high level, high level, you know, nothing in the weeds. Um, but what I was getting back to for hope is that there are a growing number of like sports programs out there. And, and I think even running is. We're, we're seeing a lot of brands and running do this. Cycling is starting to do it really well of having content within teams and athletes, either within races or within training sessions. So like one of my favorite programs, like on HBO each year is Hard Knocks inside an NFL team. Um, so you actually get to see the day-to-day -day life and struggles of these players. And you come to like, just feel the gravity of 
their athletic pursuits so much more and respect the process. 24-7 on HBO, like when they go, when they do lead-ups to boxing fights, that is so good. Like to see how hard these guys train, how they live, what they're thinking about day to day, like what is the backdrop of their struggle? Like whether it's their families, their kids, their like just the reason they're doing it, what's going on in their life, the people out there that are telling them they can't do it, the people out there that they're, you know, raging against, like those stories that, that you get are just so beautiful. And and then like I said, there are a lot of cycling teams out there that are doing this really, really well now where they're doing like short films inside their teams. Um, even a couple running running squads are doing that really well. So understanding the humanity, I think, inside the process is going to be a, a key. And I, I hope we I hope we do that and, and have a better way to share it. Um, because it's something that, you know, even even for me as simple as like it's something that I've always thought about but I haven't been very good at doing myself. Not, I, th I think I'm, I, from time to time will write essays on whether it's like a race report or on, um, you know, other things. And I think I'm, I think I'm very, very skilled at writing and communicating those things. I just don't, I just don't do it. <laughs> um, well, I like, think, yeah, I think you are reading things. through different blog posts. I think you articulate things pretty well. Yeah, and, and so it's maybe maybe I need to try to do that better. But one of the things that I've recently started doing was logging my training on Strava, which I never did that before. Um, more out of like this idea of like, well, I just like not not trying to hide anything or like anything like that. But it was more out of like I wanted my running to be for myself, or from a standpoint of like it was like you know my running log was like a personal thing for me that. I'm like, I don't want, I don't want this to be like, I don't want there to be any like exhibitionist element of this, of like, you know, constantly thinking about having people seeing what I do like this, this training, this is, this is my own thing. But then I kind of, I've over the years, I'm, I feel very strongly of all these things I was telling about of like, you want, you want like people, people need to see that if they, if you want them to understand your process and your struggles, like let bring them in, you know, like share that. And so I, I kind of had this realization after I had a long injury spell. Once I started building back up earlier this year, I was like, I'm just going to start putting all this on Strava because, you know, if there's 10 people that look at it and they are, whether it's they're inspired or intrigued or whatever, like I want that you know, I, I want, I want people to know that because my training, my training is part of my artistic process. It's, that is my, you know, my, my output. And I think it's to, to show that to people, I think it is, is important or valuable. Um, because at the end of the day, like my races, like the race, the races, I mean, so often the race is like, at best, the final chapter of the book, but more often than not, if you do it right, the race is the epilogue. Um, mm -hmm. And that, you know, the training is really, that that period, that's, that's the book, man. Those are the trials, the tribulations, the like, you know, in, in big training blocks, I go through, I go through the seven circles of hell that like race day doesn't even approach. If, you know, like I said, if you do it right, race day, 
race day is a celebration of, you know, the 40 days in the desert that you, that you spent, um, you know, yeah. Jeff, as we start running down um, time here, it's a question I'm asking everybody uh, this season on the show. Uh, they'll ask you too, and I want to know what you think the purpose of sport is. Um, man, you know, we got it. We, we kind of, we kind of touched on it earlier. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it, I think the purpose of sport is, um, actually, let's see. I think the purpose of sport is to. play out play out the physicality of the human spirit is it's a it's a reenactment it's an engagement um of of that that fundamental component of us as a species and being and that is that is um combative and challenging movement in all forms and I think that um, you know, sport is really a recreation and a reenactment of, in some ways, um, like the fight and the hunt to survive or to get, whether it's you know to find sustenance to to you know conquer a threat. Um, that is you know part of part of the human condition. I, I think what what we are. As as beings, we have we have this like this beautiful um, symbiotic relationship between movement and kind of movement and physicality and intellect and cognition. And I think sport is really in. Uh, an exercise and a reenactment of that that physical side of the human spirit. Well put, well put, um, Jeff. If people want to see your somewhat infrequent posts, but very eloquently put, um, see your research, any of that kind of stuff, where can people find you? So I have um, I have my personal website. I'll update with like my scientific publications as well as occasional blog posts I do. So that's jeffreyburns.com. I, um, I also have, you know, I'm, I am, uh, infrequently, frequently active on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I haven't been on Twitter in, in a while. I like, I, I go and I go in bursts where I'll be super active and engaging on it. And then, and then kind of pull away whether I need to like start sleeping better or just kind of clear my head. Um, <laughs> uh, I, so I haven't been on in a couple of weeks, but normally I, you know, a lot of times I'll be on Twitter so you can follow kind of some of my thoughts on there. Jeffrey Burns is my handle. Same thing with Instagram. Um, and then recently, if you want to follow my training Strava, um, you can probably just search Jeffrey Burns or Jeff Burns. Maybe it's probably Jeff Burns on Strava. Um, yeah. So all those. Sounds good. Thanks for hanging out with me today, Jeff. No, thank you. It's an absolute, absolute pleasure chatting. Um, yeah, sport, sport's a beautiful thing.
fundamental, fundamental exercise of the human spirit. Absolutely. Take care. All right. Thanks.